gotta get ourselves comfortable because uh, I don't know how else we'll get through this. <laughs> it's such torture talking about such things like movies. Oh no, we just have to talk about our favorite movies of the year. Yeah, welcome to the Ways of Cinema, everyone. I'm Jack, and the voice you heard, of course, was Wifely Duties Corey. Thank you, Corey. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. <laughs> I just know, like, whenever I listen to the How This Get Made podcast, like, Paul and June are married, but whenever June comes out, she comes out always third. And Paul is like, hi. Hi, June. How are you? Hi, Paul. I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> like, they're not married and have two kids. Um, but yeah, as Corey just mentioned, um, the time has finally come. We are going to talk about our... Favorite movies of 2019. Uh, give you that clean 10 that everyone always seems to like because, you know, yeah, you know, it's like the Ten Commandments. It's a marketing move. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to count down from 10 to 2. And then before we do number one, well, you have honorable mentions. I have honorable mention. In the singular. <laughs> you, could, my, you could say movies you liked from last year that didn't make your list. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. If you feel... I'm, you know, as I mentioned some honorable mentions, you might be like, oh yeah, I like that movie. Yeah, I probably will. <laughs> I know you. Uh, yeah, so we're going to do that and we'll... You know, some of our matches... Some of our movies will match up. Um... There will be some that are obviously different because there are a few that I saw that you didn't. Yeah, there are three movies on your top ten that I haven't seen. Yeah, and even more in my honorable mentions. Um, Meanwhile, you have seen every movie on my top ten, of course. Yeah, there wasn't anything that... Well, frankly, before we get into the discussion, um, I mean, I know you kind of said this, and I agree to an extent... 2019 was not the strongest year for, for movies. Oh, this year was weak as hell. No, I mean, I did ultimately come up with, like, on Letterboxd, if you go to my Letterboxd account, um, which you can see more uh, things, by the way, if you're ever interested to go to the le my Letterboxd, which is just Jack Gattinella, uh, I have certain lists that I've posted. Like, I have a list of every film we've ever talked about in the Wages Cinema going back to the beginning. Um, for example, I also have a list of what I call 2019 toppers. And I have actually 32 movies on my list. Oh. And so in that sense, it was, I think, ultimately, it, I think the last few months were needed for it to be better than it was. There was a period of time, though, in particular, during the summer, where it just felt like, what's going on with this year? Well, what I said to you is, I have a top ten for you, but I really feel like only my top six deserve to be on a top ten. So, I kind of feel like my seven through ten, don't get me wrong, they're good movies, and I like them a lot, but they would not sniff a top ten list in a stronger year. But... I couldn't just roll in here with the top six. I had to round it out to ten. Yeah. Well, the thing is, too, is as as there, as a lot of people know, you know, as TV shows and streaming become a little bit more dominant, and film, you know, still has its place, but is not necessarily the dominant um, mass popular art form that it is. Um, you know, frankly, there are 
there are a lot of options on TV that are probably more enticing than film. I mean, just this year, I mean, if you were to, if you were one of those people that tried to include, you know, seasons of a TV show on your list, which I know you don't do that, but some people do, wouldn't Succession be on your list? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Succession... Or actually, Mrs. Maisel wouldn't be that high. That was a little bit flawed. But I know we're getting off track here. So we should talk about the movies. That being said, though, our number one was absolutely phenomenal. Here's a little spoiler for you. If you go through the podcast that we recorded last year, you might be able to pick out the movie that's our number one. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just a little bit. And also, when we get closer to the top, I think a few of our picks are going to be the same so that will kind of consolidate our discussion a bit Uh, but i can tell you that most of the movies that we're talking about we haven't discussed in the podcast some of them we have and if we do i'll make note and you can listen to our longer episodes Uh, but i'll start off uh with my number number 10 my number 10 is pedro almodovar's uh pain and glory Treinta y dos años me ha costado reconciliarme con esta película. Si no escribes ni ruedas, ¿qué vas a hacer? Vivir, supongo. Ten cuidado conmigo, eh. Tú eres muy novelero. Estoy con Salvador Mayo. Which translates as Dólar y Gloria. Uh, I didn't hear this movie. I don't know if I said that correctly. Um, yeah, I wish I think you might have liked it if you had gone to see it. Um, Almodovar has what I would kind of consider on the surface. It seems like at first it's going to be maybe a little bit of his Fellini tribute. And by that, I mean, as a little bit of eight and a half and a little bit of Amacord. Which I know is probably not that exciting for you. Oh, I you hated Armacord so much Uh-oh. all those years ago. I don't even remember it anymore because you showed it to me so long ago, but it was so boring. So boring. We actually, I think I took you to see it in the theater. Yeah, we shot the film for him. I think you said, if I remember, that you liked 20% of it and then 80% of it just you didn't like. I think Armor Cord is amazing, but, you know, different story. All right. (laughs) But going back to the movie, so it turns out to be a lot more than just that as far as I'm a filmmaker reminiscing on my life because this movie feels so personal that if I try to start saying, oh, it feels like he's doing Fellini. No, Almodovar is now his own kind of type of film unto himself. It's almost like... A David Lynch film is his own genre, or, mm. or uh, you know, Werner Herzog is his own genre. That's that's Pedro Almodovar, and so in this movie, it he it follows this guy as he Antonio Banderas is the lead in this movie. Sorry, if you listen to me trying to move around, I'm just trying to get a little more comfortable. Um, I was leaning on my side and it wasn't working. Okay. Um, he, this guy that that Antonio Banderas plays is is a filmmaker. He uh, then is kind of going through a period where he's frankly in a lot of physical pain and depression. And over the course of some time, he reconnects with 
this actor who had been in a movie that he made like 30 years before. And then he, by having kind of like a retrospective of this movie um, or actually in that, and the actor from it wants to do like perform a piece that he wrote. Then that brings this other guy who is from his past back and they reconnect. And all through this, he thinks back to growing up in this little village with his mother uh, played by Penelope Cruz. And it's, it's not, it's not as funny as some of his other films. There are a couple of scenes that are really amusing. Um, there's a scene where he, this, uh, and the Antonio Banderas filmmaker character, he's supposed to show up to this Q and a for this movie that he made and he doesn't show up, but they put in a speakerphone so he can talk to the audience. And he basically has kind of like a meltdown in front of them. Uh, and like, he's there in the room with the actor and they're like fighting over this phone. Um, but it's, it's usually like the Fellini thing is a jumping off point. It's much more, it, I mean, I don't know a full biography of Almodovar, but I feel like even if you haven't, even if you don't know anything about his life, the movie just works as like a memory film. It's a really engrossing and touching film about how love and like different kinds of love connects us to people. And we sometimes forget about that love and then maybe we reconnect with that and it draws us in closer to them. And, uh, and then there's also one other character I neglected to mention. There's almost like three kind of men in Antonio Banderas's life who end up bringing up a lot of different emotions for him. And, and Banderas is great. Like you usually think of him as like, I am very cool. I'm very, I'm very Antonio Banderas. And I used to, he, <laughs> he was slightly ruined for me for a few years because on Saturday Night Live, uh, Chris Kattan would do a skit where he'd play I am Antonio E. Vandas, El Actor, and this is the, how do you say, ah, yes, show. <laughs> was <laughs> this the first movie you had seen him in since Life Itself? He was in Life Itself, wait, no, he wasn't in that, was he? Yes, he was. <laughs> oh my god. Oh no, he was in Life Itself, like, wait a minute, I'm trying to look through... His yeah he was oh my god yeah. oh don't Annette, don't doubt my life itself knowledge that movie's on Amazon Prime I'm considering rewatching the totally bonkers first half so you'll rewatch life itself and not watch life like the pain and glory I'll see it at some point yeah I'm not um, opposed to it yeah unfortunately another problem with this movie though is whenever I think of it I get confused with pain and gain. <laughs> And not the same movie, not the same movie at all. But the point I'm trying to make, though, is this movie has so much heart and it's just you can feel a motivar is pouring his soul out in this movie. And but it's not a film that's so melodramatic that it might that you might get a little worn down. It's a little bit more steady than that. It's just there's like sorrow that this character keeps feeling and he has also he has like a drug addiction but he but he manages to balance that out with all these memories and all this 
you know, love that he felt for these men in his life and for his mother. And, uh, and it's just a, such a beautiful movie. And then also the very end makes the film. I'm not going to see what happens, but the very ending, it's like a more naturalistic Holy Mountain. All right. <laughs> well, I did see Holy Mountain, but I don't, do you, do you remember I don't how remember the, Holy... the ending. I okay. saw it a long time ago. Well, for those of you who have seen the Holy Mountain, then maybe you'll understand that reference. But Banderas is great. It's probably his best performance uh, that I've seen from him. I can't think of another film where he moved me so much, where he really touched me. And, um, yeah. Uh, also just really great uses of color as Almodovar is known for, but in particular how he uses white and red. Well, it had that gorgeous all red poster. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're looking at the, uh, the poster now and yeah, there's this poster where I think very clearly too, Almodovar made Banderas look a little bit like him. I think Almodovar has, like, all white hair, um, but he has, like, s- like kind of similar facial hair that I've seen when he's... Do you think he's a White Stripes fan? And that explains the color scheme? Sure. <laughs> that, that explains everything. He's not an artist with his own <laughs> preoccupations. <laughs> all right, so that was Pain and Glory. Um, so that was what I had to say about that. So All what's right. your number 10, Corey? My number 10 is the movie Knives Out. Thank you all for getting together like this. It isn't legally necessary, but I thought because you're all in town and some of you are leaving soon. Excuse me. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to gently request that you all stay in town until the investigation is completed. Yeah, well, he's gently requesting, but I'm going to have to make that in order. No one move until we figure this all out. What? Can we ask why? Has something changed? No. No, it hasn't changed, or no, we can't ask. Mr. Stevens, uh, you may continue. Well, I put knives out on my list because it's impeccably constructed. I feel like for a mystery movie, it hits the absolute perfect balance of it's not so basic that you, the audience member, is five steps ahead of the character. Mm -hmm. But it's not too convoluted that it falls into contrivance Mm -hmm. or or it's too hard to follow. Do you know when people use the cliche where they compliment a movie by saying it's built like a Swiss watch? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. This movie is just... The plot is impeccably crafted... Every single step is perfect. Like, when I was watching this movie, I actually think, even though this is often used as a criticism of unsuccessful films, I actually really love being manipulated by an incredibly talented director sometimes. Well, sure. And Ryan Johnson knows that. He's, as we've seen from, you know, things like Looper and Last Jedi, he knows how to play his audience very well. So, I was just putty in Ryan Johnson's hands for this entire movie. And I knew I was feeling and thinking exactly what he wanted me to feel and think at every moment. The plot was amazing. I'm not going to pretend the characterizations are super deep across the board, Mm. but some of them are. And the 
characters that aren't deep are really fun and the dialogue crackles and the movie looks great. Well, well, I think he knows that this is, he has to balance two things that it's an ensemble film, but ultimately it is mostly Anna de Arias. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Miss Anna, Anna, Anna de Armas, excuse me. It's really her movie. And also, to an extent, Daniel Craig. Like, they're the two real leads. And then everybody else gets kind of varying degrees of personality. And, you know, that kind of goes from, you know, like, Michael Shannon to a kid from Book of Henry. (laughs) Well, yeah, this movie, it is a large ensemble. And again, I feel like the movie gives us exactly as much of every character. I mean, I think it's a real skill to get to balance a large ensemble cast. And there's no character where I ever thought, like, I want more of this person or I want less of this person. Yes. Everyone was exactly the same. And even on, like, a superficial level, I know this is going to sound weird, the wardrobes. Amazing. I So I assume that you, uh, have you been following the whole, uh... Chris Evans sweater on Twitter thing. Yes, and it's totally <laughs> right. Chris Evans' sweater in this movie is a character unto itself. Yes, uh, yeah. For the Chris Evans has was wears like this white sweater. Is it like wool? I mean, I didn't want to imagine it as being wool because. I can't wear wool, and I wanted to imagine myself in the sweater. <laughs> so in my mind, it's not, Aww. but it could be. <laughs> I forgot you can't wear wool. I can't wear anything that is any wool in it whatsoever. Even a sweater, it's like 10% wool I can't wear. Oh, so... This is my lot in life. This I know. Burden. <laughs> if you were, like, living with the sheep, you would just look at them <laughs> with very sad eyes. So... But yeah, no, yeah, Chris Evans. So and he's amazing in it. Oh and, yeah, I'm gonna have more to say when I talk about this movie later on, on my Oh list. yeah, so it's higher on your list. And I would say both my number ten and my number nine movie aren't like the deepest movies in the yeah. world, but they are just expertly crafted, super fun, and knives out. And I'm so glad this has been a real word of mouth hit. Oh god, yeah. Yeah, this is movie is made real bank uh, and it's it, as probably there are these i hate this this term because it tries to say that a movie has to perform this way i feel like there are box office analysts and whatever you want to call them quote experts which what, what the fuck does that mean but knives out has probably quote overperformed yeah. Past expectations. It's made like 250 million so far, which for its budget, I mean, this was, this was like a medium level budget movie. And this is that kind of rare breed of ho- in Hollywood where you get an expert cast, you have a really, you know, terrific script and a director who knows what he's doing or she's doing. And that's it. It's not based on anything. Of course, the only thing is that it is familiar in that, you know, we've seen whodunits before. We've seen, uh, he puts a fresh, it's like a, a completely fresh coat of paint on a car you love. Yeah. And 
really nice to see Daniel Craig having fun because, as you know, I don't really like Bond movies, uh-huh. so I haven't really seen a lot of Daniel Craig performances I, that I like for that reason. I think the key thing, any movie where he has a southern accent <laughs> is golden. So between this and his performance in Logan Lucky, you know, that's when he gets to have fun. Yeah. When he gets to tap into his inner cracker. <laughs> So, I know we'll be talking about this later, because it's higher on your list. I don't want to belabor the point. Let's get to your number nine. Number nine is Avengers Endgame. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's so good to see you. Give me a cuddly little rascal. Oh, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's not necessary. Hulk, you know, uh, you know my friends, Meek from Cornwall, right? Hey, hey guys. Long time no see. Beers in the bucket. Feel free to log into the Wi-Fi. No password, obviously. Thor, he's back. That kid on the TV just called me a dickhead again. Noob Master. Yeah, Noob Master 69. Called me a dickhead. Noob Master, hey, it's Thor again. You know, the God of Thunder? Listen, buddy, if you don't log off this game immediately, I'm gonna fly over to your house, come down to that basement you're hiding in, rip off your arms and shove them up your butt! Oh, that's right, yes, go cry to your father, you little weasel! Thank you, Thor. Hey, let me know if he bothers you again, okay? Thank you very much, I will. This is higher on my list, actually. Okay. Um, well... For me, I mean, again, this is a movie we talked at length on uh, the podcast uh, months ago. Um, So, I mean, you can hear a lot more about that in there. But to just talk in brief again, I think uh, I saw this movie a couple more times. And I'm just struck by how much they were able to rebound from what was a bit of a mixed bag with Infinity War, at least for me. And how this movie just exemplifies so much of what is the best of what the people at Marvel cinematic universe, whatever you want to call them, Marvel studios that they've been able to do these past 10, 12 years that every character gets almost every major character that needs a moment gets a moment. But more than that, I feel like it really does bring closure for uh, Tony Stark and a character who I know you weren't that crazy about, Steve Rogers. Yeah, I never thought that I'd actually really care about Captain America. Yeah. Here we are. They both get such... They, they, they get full arcs within this movie. And then also extending to the other movies. So if if you've only seen maybe a couple of the other films, you could still get a grasp on what the dynamics are between all of them. And they managed to just find this terrific balance of taking the whole snap seriously, which I didn't think, Oh, they'll just fix this right away. And like, after I saw Endgame, I was actually really disappointed because I'm like, this isn't going to mean anything. You know, that was my attitude, but seeing the movie, it's like, no, they actually, did a decent job of showing what that did to society, but then moving on from that into what is basically a heist plot. Um, and you know, it's time heist the movie. (laughs) Well, yeah, I agree with everything you said. I don't want to talk about it personally in detail only because it's higher on my list. Yeah. Um, 
And the other couple of things I'd say, uh, again, very, very funny movie in a lot of spots. Um, I mean, Fat Thor is probably, I don't care if you're uh, offended that I called him Fat Thor. Sorry. If I call Baby Yoda, Baby Yoda, I can call Fat Thor, Fat Thor. Um, he's one of my gurus of the year. I just love that they turned Thor into the dude. Oh, yeah. Who would have thought that Avengers Endgame would have made successful callbacks to Thor the Dark World? Yes. And they really work. Who saw yeah. that coming? Yeah, they integrated <laughs> Thor the Dark World in a way that was very meaningful. Absolutely. Um, and, ulti- and ultimately, they were able to bring a lot of pathos to the ending. Um at least to a, a tiny degree, they made a couple of deaths really stick and feel like they had that they mattered. Yeah. Um, and it's also just a it's a great popcorn movie. I that's term that's a little bit tired, but it's a great movie to pop down. And for three hours, it entertains you to no end like the russos did a really fantastic job of finding a way to tell an actual story that gets us invested in these characters as opposed to we have to face a kind of villain that we're not that excited about yeah and this this movie does not drag for a second which i think is pretty amazing although there might be an even longer movie on our list. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. What wacky. could be longer than Avengers Endgame? I know. And, <laughs> and are you going to have to go to the bathroom during that movie? Oh, my God. <laughs> All, All right. right. Number nine. My number nine movie is Booksmart. We have to go to a party tonight. What? Nobody knows that we are fun. We didn't party because we wanted to focus on school and get into good colleges. And it worked. But the irresponsible people who partied also got into those colleges. I'm incredible at hand jobs, but I also got a 1560 on the SATs. We haven't done anything. We haven't broken any rules. Name one person whose life was so much better because they broke a couple of rules. Picasso. He broke art rules. Rosa Parks. Name another Susan one. Susan B. Anthony. God damn it. I'd say it's maybe on my honorable mentions. It might not quite make that though um i did like this movie but tell me what uh what made this on your list all right so the amazing chemistry of the two leads yes so good um actually you saw it's caitlin devers that's your name you saw her in that show unbelievable where she was really good in a dramatic role I did not, but her and Beanie Feldstein have amazing chemistry. And yeah, they feel like they are at times like screwball characters from another time in movie history. As much as like the, going into this, I thought it would just be like, oh, super bad with girls because that's how they marketed it. Yeah, it's like we're gonna have a wild night on our final, you know, s- sprint of high school, and. I mean, a couple of times it is a little bit hijinksy and big gimmicky, but really it's more just about these two girls and their own, you know, social uh, quirks and not being able to connect with people. Yeah. So what's interesting is 
I liked it showed how incredibly close their relationship was, but also the there's only the potential like problems that can bubble underneath that kind of closeness. And I also liked how this movie simultaneously like made the two lead characters very likable and very fun, but also didn't make them perfect. No, no, they 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 screw up a bit. Um, it's it's almost like if Superbad was infused with the spirit of that show, Daria. Yeah, that's a good comparison. And because you know, in Daria, you had well, I know in Daria, the two main characters, Daria and. Was her friend Jane? Jane. Jane. Jane they were they were a bit more like disaffected than the characters, the two girls in Booksmart. But I feel like there's a certain similar energy as far as here are two heroines because they're at least the ones who are relatively normal, while everyone else are more or less a bunch of screw ups. And I. I see the connection between Booksmart and Superbad. While I like Superbad, I think Booksmart is basically a mu- is like a much better version of everything Superbad was trying to do. I don't know if I'd say better. They just do things differently. I think Superbad had has that Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, twisted, g- gross, but earnest comic sensibility. This is a little bit more in the earnest category, but it still manages to make these two girls, they're just, it's fun to be around them. And yet, and yet they do end up having conflicts that like, there's a point two thirds of the way in the movie where we get that moment that usually happens in these films. Like it happened, like for example, in pineapple express, or something where, oh my god, we're having an argument. But it feels legit for what they're going through in that moment. The supporting characters are really good, too. Oh, oh Billy Piper? Billy Lord. Billy Lord. Oh, I say Billy Piper. <laughs> Jeez, that's not the same person at all. I'm getting my Billy's confused. So, yeah. I'm going to be hit with a Billy club next. And the teachers are really funny. And- yes, Jason Sudeikis. Wow. Like, you know, what's interesting. It occurs to me, Jason Sudeikis had uh, a pretty good year for him because he was in Booksmart and then he was the in the Mandalorian. He was he one punched of the <laughs> <Baby Yoda. laughs> Yeah, we don't see his face, but yeah, he's one of the two stormtroopers that punches Baby Yoda. But yeah, I I also like this is a comedy and I think it's super funny. Oh, that's the key thing. It's very funny. Oh, um also I also want to point out Jessica Williams uh, has a great character. Do you remember her in the movie? She's the other teacher. Yes. Oh, oh. I, who shacks up with a, who actually shacks up with a student who's like 20 years old and still in high school. But that, but it's still it's funny in a funny way, yeah. The other thing about this movie is a lot of comedies, I feel like even good ones, have at least one stretch where they kind of peter out. Yeah. This never does. Well, it doesn't peter out because Olivia Wilde uh, was really smart to... Uh, make sure to have like 
when things are in a little bit of a dramatic, I won't say lull, but when things need to be less funny for a little bit, like there's a scene, there's a, a few minutes at the party where things need to just mellow out. And she has really great, directing chops she and the barbie scene we haven't even talked about the barbie scene <laughs> yeah that scene is so so good oh uh, yeah there's like three minutes of this movie that is just claymation and it's wonderful um if it didn't make my list or going higher it's just because there are some things about it that are still familiar to me uh-huh. that did kind of stick out in that way well my one the one thing I didn't like about this movie is the Kaylin Devers character, she's a lesbian, but she doesn't really have experience. And I loved how the movie handled that, like loved that, her fears about putting herself out there. But the one thing I didn't like about the movie is she has a hookup over the course of the film, and her hookup is a girl that's been totally bitchy to her in the entire movie, like leading up to the hookup scene and the actual hookup scene. I really liked, but as you know, I don't like that super common trope where people who are nothing but mean to each other hook up. Yeah. Yeah. There there are certain tropes in this movie that you can't really escape them. Um, Again, I still like the movie a lot. It just, uh, but and I really like the ending too. The ending is awesome. Somebody, somebody pointed out that the ending is a bit like a funnier Ladybird. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. So yeah, this movie super funny, super charming. Yeah, tons of heart. Uh, and Olivia Wilde is going to be a major filmmaker. Yeah, like. This, for a first... This is her first directorial... Feature. She made some other movies. You would be impressed because one of her titles on her filmography so far... Let me show you. Aw, she made a movie called Free Hugs. Yes. I am wearing a t-shirt that says Hug Dealer as we record this podcast. Of course you are. Because I am a hug dealer with one client. One very satisfied client, I hope. You hug other people. It's not the same, though. All right. Like so, one. yeah, my number eight is uh, Ad Astra. This is a top secret psychological evaluation. Please describe your current emotional state. I'm steady, calm, ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. focused. He looked just like your dad there. He was the first man to the outer solar system. He was a pioneer. But there was much more to him than that. Which would be called Dad Dastra. It's like he intent the film the director intentionally took off the D, but we know what it means. Dad Dastra. Did it, you listen to the film spotting top ten of the year? I did not yet. Was this on there? Well, Adam put it on there, but no one else did. And oh, I felt no. did they, bad did they for atta- him. Did they attack him because for it? Because the rest were all really down on it. 
but Adam really loved it. No, see that this movie, yeah, I I really went for this. It is very dense, and it's it's very hard sci-fi. I think that's what maybe some people going to see this um, weren't quite expecting. I remember when I saw this uh, opening weekend, it was in a pretty packed theater. And I felt like I had no way of knowing this for sure, but it seemed like a number of people who were there thought, hey, bro, Brad Pitt's in space movie. Let's go see it. <laughs> and that's the voice I've assigned them. Hey, bro, got Brad Pitt in space. Let's go, man. It's going to be tubular. I'm giving them all <laughs> surfer voices. But no, it is very much a movie that's meant to get you thinking as much as in getting engrossed in the spectacle of it. Um, what's in depth about it is that the director, James Gray, and his co-writer, it it feels almost like more of what like Arthur C. Clarke was trying to do with his writing, and especially with 2001 A Space Odyssey. But it, it almost, it's like, but it's also, it does better what I wanted out of Interstellar, Oh. The Christopher Nolan movie, which I also liked uh, quite a bit, but I think that this lands the emotion a little bit more because in Ad Astra, Brad Pitt, he's this astronaut, and there are these weird signals coming from deep out in the uh, out in in our galaxy, and oh god, I'm trying to remember if he goes out to Jupiter or Saturn. I think it's Saturn. And there's this ship that his father is on because his father is also an astronaut, but people don't, but nobody knows like what happened in the ship. And so Brad Pitt is sent out there to find his dad. His dad's Tommy Lee Jones. And in some ways, I said that this movie is like Arthur C. Clarke's Apocalypse Now, <laughs> which seems like a weird comparison, but it's also like how last year. I had I really loved Annihilation, and I yeah. called that Andre Tarkovsky's The Thing. That movie was really good. <laughs> Annihilation. Yes. Yeah, which and that's why I think that you would like Ad Astra because it has it's that type of feel where it's hard sci-fi, but every so often they'll throw something really violent and crazy at you. There's a scene in Ad Astra that I'm not going to go in depth about, but it involves a space ape. <laughs> <laughs> and like i was surprised when this came up and i was like that's when i was in the theater and i had like this gigantic smile on my face through this whole scene because like oh <laughs> you're giving me what i didn't know i wanted out of this movie and ultimately it's very emotional as well like when he when pitt finally does come to his father i mean i won't say what happens with that but um, it it makes it almost is closer to probably what Heart of Darkness the story was even more than Apocalypse Now because Apocalypse Now guys sent out to kill this guy who's off on his own crazy mission in Heart of Darkness he's meant to try to save him and what comes with that this is just such a major directorial force too from from James Gray. Um, he finds like this really good balance of making, you know, things really pop on a giant screen, 
but you also are engaged with, um, you know, what, what it's trying to say about, uh, um, what am I trying to say here? Um, it's, it's like what, well, we don't know what's out there and that's, what's really scary. And it, it almost feels like there could have been a whole other movie that took place before involving Tommy Lee Jones, or there's also Donald, Donald, Donald Sutherland plays a character, weird space Cowboys reboot <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, the weirdest one. Uh, but ultimately what I liked is that there's all these ideas about what will happen if we ever go out into space. There's a whole thing that they is great. Like they go to the moon for like a, about like 15 minutes of the movie. And they just show that immediately we've made the moon into a, almost like an, like a basic airport. <laughs> and they're already like these roving gangs on the moon who like go and like, you know, kill people and take their shit. Well, I actually, I think the idea of making space boring and ordinary is very fascinating. Yeah. That's something I don't think we've ever, just imagine if you went to space and it was full of office parks. Yeah, well, it's it's almost that. Oh, and uh, Natasha Lyonne has an interesting small part that's related to that. Um... I don't know if I would feel differently seeing it again, but I just, I just know watching this. Also, Brad Pitt is really excellent in the film too. He, I haven't seen a performance this good from him since uh, the movie with the longest unnecessary title, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, Robert Ford. (laughs) God saying that title feels like uh, saying a title of dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) the assassination of jesse james by the coward ford by the coward robert ford colon an exploration of the west's intrinsic violence and machismo and all right so so ad astra like i said there is i also just had feelings because it made me think a little bit of my dad and you know certain things personally that i won't I'm just saying a podcast, but things that it made me feel that, you know, it, it'd be a good dad movie. Let me put it that way. Well, sounds like it was a fun trip to outer space. Outer space. All right, let's keep this train moving. Okay, yes, number eight. We're going too long on these movies. I'm looking at the time. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Time clock. Um, all right, my number eight, Toy Story 4. Why am I alive? You are a toy. You belong to Bonnie. These are your friends. Woody, I have a question. Um, well, actually, not just one. I have all the questions. Who wants to go on a road trip? Me! I got a vacation! You need help with that. No, no, I got it. (laughs) I know, this is a little strange, but we all have to make sure nothing happens to Forky. Woody! Something happened to him. Buzz, we gotta get Forky. Roger that. A movie that, when Toy Story 3 ended, it was such a perfect ending, I was quite skeptical towards the very existence of Toy Story 4. And I was like, really? Do we need to walk this road again? And guess what? 
We did. It was awesome. You didn't know that Forky would come into your life. <laughs> Literally the greatest character in the history of cinema. It's all right. I checked. You know, Charles Foster Kane, you're you're okay. You know, uh, uh, Atticus Finch, you know, you, you've had your time. Forky. And this is a movie <laughs> that has made us both cry. It did give me, I did feel some feelings watching it. And actually, you and I have cried to, like, the same scene in this movie. Oh, I can't even say what it is, or I might start tearing up. It's very much like how I sometimes torture you by just describing the opening of Up. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bit of that. But yeah, Toy Story 4... Really, yeah, much better than it had any right to to be, and managed to also make Woody probably the most important he's been since like the second movie, or even the first one. Like in the third movie, I feel like the ensemble was a bit more of the 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 key to that film, but this time it's really Woody's story. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it so remarkable is that they go back to him. And they complete an arc that we didn't even know needed to be wrapped, be complete. Yeah. So the fact that they still had new ground to tell, the fact that they still, I mean, the Toy Story movies are heavy, man. Yeah. They're really existential and you, you wrestle with mortality. There, there's a, well, let me put it this way. In this movie, you have a lot of the time spent in an antique shop and a character who you think is going to be the antagonist of the film turns out to not only not be that, but is the one that, you know, made me feel like, Oh God, you're, you're, this is like a therapy session. Yeah. The Gabby Gabby doll. By the way, this is a redemption arc that Rise of the Skywalker couldn't even sniff. Yes. Yeah. How about that? That with a like a doll, they managed to do much better than Kylo Ren. Because I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think there are some real similarities between the characters. Hmm. Between Gabby Gabby and Kylo Ren. But in just one movie. Toy Story 4 actually gives us a complete arc. And it's also just very funny, too. Like, a lot of the best Toy Story movies, they find just a terrific balance of comedy that is really funny. Like, maybe sometimes more for the adults than even the kids, but it's, like, everything with the Key and Peele dolls is just amazing. Like, there... And I, I thought that I would get tired of that on... You know, when I watch the movie again, no, I still found it funny when yeah. they when they describe how they're going to get out of like a predicament they are in, and they show different versions of how they would do it. These movies have great action scenes too, much better than the action in most movies. Yeah, I'd say even better than Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> to go back to trash so- on that. But yeah, this movie, what I love about pretty much the entire Toy Story series is they managed to plumb real emotional depths about like what it means to love someone and what it means to age. Yeah. What is it, and what does it mean 
to find yourself becoming irrelevant to people you love because i also feel like the movies are very much about parenthood and what it's like to parent a child yes because woody is very much a parent to his children and i mean yeah i am not a parent but i can still appreciate a well-told story about parenthood it's also a little bit like imagine if a dog was sentient yeah because he's very much all about loyalty and being loyal to those who are supposed to own you and be in your life. And how Woody comes to understand, like realize, okay, I should maybe do something else with my life. It's, it's like both heartbreaking, but it's ultimately you come around and realize, no, this is the best thing that could happen for him. Yeah. And he basically, he has to wrestle with finding a new sense of purpose. And he found in prior movies, he found his purpose and service to Andy. But another thing I think the movie is really interested in exploring is to what, to what degree is Woody totally selfless, but in a way he is selfless in a way that almost becomes selfish at times. Oh, yeah, no, no, he, no, for sure. Like, he well, really depends on the validation well, of Bonnie. And well, when he doesn't get it. Yeah, well, that and that his crux becomes, I have to protect Forky at all costs. And suddenly there's a point where the other characters are like, come on, you got to, like, leave it. You know, you got to move on. And he's like, no, no, I won't. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, this movie was uh, Am really I trash? Well Am I trash? <laughs> that, yeah, that itself. I mean, when Toy Story 4 has the philosophical weight of Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly <laughs> of the Silence of God trilogy, my God, the Toy Story 4 movie, like, the Toy Story movies, it's like... The fact that you could put it in the same breath as Bergman is just insane. Yeah. So but it's, it's true. It's totally true. So <laughs> I love this movie. So Toy Story 4, <laughs> as good as Winter Light. <laughs> well, I can tell you which one I'm more interested in rewatching. <laughs> oh, there's always room for Winter Light. No, I'm All right. So All right, my, that was my number eight. My number seven uh, is Knives Out. Um... And to add on to what you were talking about uh, before, um, yeah, this is a impeccably uh, plotted film. But what I especially loved is how Johnson really keeps the like a viewer on their toes because I the way that he lays out the story of this movie, you think that the mystery is wrapped up a third of the way in. Yeah. And I thought it was. And I was like, huh, interesting. Okay, so what's, but what are we going to find out now? So, but it becomes about, then he spends a lot of time just giving us um, the Ana de Armas character and then Daniel Craig and how they are finding out, no, there's so more to what's going on here. And there are these little crumbs that are leading us in these other directions. And then when he suddenly, then when he has that big Poirot monologue at the end, it's like, oh, oh, you are waiting for to lay this out. And I, it's rare for me to actually get surprised by 
a filmmaker's story prowess, but Johnson has just an innate ability of knowing what an audience going to see a movie like this would expect, turning it on its head and yet still giving you what you wanted or that you didn't know that yeah. you want. And also it's a very, what I liked is that he, uh, he knows he had clearly some political things he wanted to say, Yeah, but it doesn't overshadow the movie. You don't feel like it's becoming a polemic. He even manages to make it feel kind of satirical. Um, to me, the family almost felt like a bit out of a Buñuel movie. <laughs> and the way they talk about politics and how dismissive they are, even if you agree with something they're saying, is uh, very entertaining. Yeah. Um, and also just, oh, the cast. Oh, the cast. Oh, like, completely how everyone just fits so just mag you know Jamie Lee Curtis and and Don Johnson and Tony Collette Tony Collette and uh Christopher Plummer not needing to replace anybody and <laughs> that was a joke um <laughs> he also gets a lot of great scenes I feel like without Christopher Plummer I'm not sure if maybe the movie would work quite as well as it does even though he has such limited screen time. He's not just a plot device. Within limited screen time, you actually become invested in him. Yeah, yeah. You become invested in him, and it becomes very sad when he's gone. Uh, yeah, this is just a fabulous movie that I'm sure will improve even more on second viewings. Uh, you know, it, it's a movie that he knows is indebted to other films like this, like... Visually, you didn't pick up on this, but the way he edited things at the beginning of the movie, I was thinking, oh, this is Sleuth, the Michael Caine, uh, Lawrence Olivier movie, which you haven't seen, right? True. Yeah, Sleuth is also great, but this is in the same company as Sleuth, like as far as a mystery movie that really works. Uh, but that's all I wanted to say to add on to what you already said. Well, my number seven is also a movie that was a little bit lower on your list. My number seven is Avengers Endgame, okay. a movie which I really loved on first viewing and a movie that has only improved in my esteem over the course of the last year as I saw two other massive um, properties in this genre space totally faceplant their conclusions. What was the what was the other one? Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Well, I was thinking of when you mentioned the uh, Rise of Skywalker, well, that, because yeah. that really tried to do the ending of this. And again, as I said in my review of Rise of Skywalker, I'm sure it was just a coincidence, though I'm sure that once when J.J. Abrams saw Endgame, he went into a bathroom somewhere and cried because of how <laughs> exactly. well Endgame does, like... It meant like the ending, like the last 30 minutes of Endgame is. I'm going to use a dismissive term that it's fan service, but it's so deserved. Yeah. And I just think the degree of difficulty with this project was so high because we both were not big fans of Infinity War. Yeah. So. You less so than me. I still liked Infinity War, but it was. Um, just, it, it just wasn't as strong as I think the Russos thought it was. 
Yeah, because again, it had no. The entire second half of the movie has no stakes because you know there's no way these characters. It's one long action scene. Yeah, and I don't like too much action, but <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> but oh. but no, this movie somehow this three hour movie that has like. 67 plot things to do, 125 characters, a mix of super dramatic and super comedic um, set pieces works amazingly. Like, every character, I feel like, gets a really satisfying ending. By the way, the Hulk is awesome now. (laughs) Yeah, that's. I should have mentioned that too. Yeah, Thor, who is a character who started out and had a decent movie but was kind of took himself a little bit seriously he's now a doof and the hulk is now a great doof i love this because i have never liked the hulk as a character i find him very obnoxious the hulk is amazing in this movie and i think mark ruffalo kind of worked on you i have after a while I have a few minor nitpicks. Oh, I do too. That's why it's number nine and not higher because I don't know if you feel this way, but in that big final action scene, the part where all the women... Oh God, that makes you want to puke. That was... Uh, that That's going to not... That's going to date poorly because clearly like they did that... I, and I, I mean this literally, I, like seriously, they did that because Me Too was happening. I, I hated it. And the re- like, it was, that was, that felt pandering. It was so pandering and it was almost condescending. And virtually none of the women in that tableau have relationships with each other of any significance. One of them is Gwyneth Paltrow. And... Hey, your your vagina aside, <laughs> you know your your what they call what she call it, <laughs> or like JoJo, like yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, I don't want to know. Yeah, like that side, you've just put on armor for the first time. Where are you in this group that includes? You know, like Black Widow. Oh, no, Black, not Black Widow. She's dead. Um, <laughs> but like all these other characters who've actually done things. Well, yeah. And also, like, you don't have a girl power franchise, Marvel. You just don't. Don't yeah. pretend that you do. And it's not it a was, deal breaker for me. It was meant to get cheap applause. And again, it's it's a small moment in a movie that is, you know, three hours long. Well, I also... Again, also, sending the two people without powers to go get the Soul Stone. Come on. Yeah. But I don't want to harp on it. Like, what really amazes me about that movie is how how many things it does right. Like I said, I think the movie set, the difficulty bar is set very high, and they totally made it. And they made a movie that... And you're right, it is fan service but it's excellent fan service. It's the kind of movie that when you're done watching it, you can say, this was worth it. It works as a movie, first and foremost. Yeah. I mean, and I know there are all these arguments about, well, these are theme parks, these are not cinema. No, I'll say that it is cinema, because it does give you 
an emotional reaction. It does fill you with, you know, the type, the type of experience that you get at the movies. Yeah, it's not my absolute favorite Marvel film, no. but it's definitely in my top five. It's, it's and, in the top tier, absolutely. And it's the kind of movie that's immensely satisfying in its own right. And it's a fantastic payoff of everything we've seen before. Yes. Like, when you're done watching it, you're like, you know what? That 11 years was worth yeah. it. And All right. So, great achievement. Yeah. Good job, guys. Uh, let's now, I guess, move on to making even more money and being safe and <laughs> yeah. doing things. All right. Uh, number six is a movie that is not on your list. And to put it mildly. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I mean, I'm well, not going to relitigate this with you. Just say no. My number six is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we went. We had a, a pretty lengthy review of this uh, over the summer. Uh, I rewatched the movie uh, about a week ago to see if it would still hold up in the same place, and it does. Now, I should say that for someone like me who. Yeah, I'm not going to call myself a fanboy. I don't like that, you know, that term or whatever that means. But I, you know, I've grown up on Tarantino's movies. He's uh, he's someone who I think exemplifies uh, what can be the best in American cinema. Frankly, that you have a real independent voice that certainly has influences, but creates original stuff. Um, if this isn't higher in the list than maybe for some people. Like I know there are some out there who put once upon a time, Hollywood was their number one of the year. And I didn't quite go that far simply because it is a kind of shambling movie. It is, it, it is a movie that, uh, you know, it's at two hours and 40 minutes. And I know that Tarantino has maybe almost, as a threat said that there's a longer cut. <laughs> there's like a four hour version that maybe we'll see in a year. We'll see about that. Um, but there's, there could be five or 10 minutes trimmed from this. Like there's a long sequence where we're just seeing like the show Lancer being filmed. And, and some of that is necessary for the character of Rick Dalton, but some of it isn't, um, but I just, for me, I really enjoy being in this Hollywood that Tarantino's created. I, I feel like it's a gorgeously rendered image of a time period that existed, but it also existed in his memory. In that way, this movie is almost like his pain and glory. <laughs> Um, uh, obviously Again, different. not selling me on the movie Pain and Glory, but... Well, not not all the same type <laughs> of movie. Aside from it being about people in the world of film and and, and media. Um, and I just, I, I just love being with these two characters. Uh, you know, I, I think DiCaprio and Brad Pitt are really just having a blast playing these two guys. Uh... And and I do think that there is something that the movie is saying about what is kind of great and terrible about nostalgia and about clinging to one's past and what what it means when you have to go forward into the future and, you know, everything that that entails. I mean, and also I just like, too, that these two guys are 
there I think this is what maybe connects it in a way to pulp fiction is that they're frankly kind of losers. And I like that Tarantino focused on that and not on, you know, these are the successes. And even Sharon Tate, she's not necessarily she's not a loser at all, but she's not someone who in the movie is seen as someone who's really well known. She's kind of like someone who might be kind of on the rise. And so it's like he is trying to give voice to a Hollywood that is, you know, about the ones who struggle with, you know, their insecurities and, you know, certain rumors about things. And, uh, and I just think it's very funny. And two words, Bruce Lee, (laughs) which I know you agree is an excellent scene. Yeah. I mean, if you want to listen to our podcast about it, I didn't like this movie. I like parts of it and I liked things about it. But Would you say that percentage wise you liked 40% of it? Would you say this movie is Donald Trump's approval rating? <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I would ultimately not recommend it. I don't think it works, but I definitely like things about it. And I like moments in it. I like scenes in it. At points, I even like certain stretches of it. I maybe really like about like half an hour of this film. Half an hour? Oh, come on. Of a two hour and 40 minute movie? Well, I did say I didn't like the movie. (laughs) I mean, um, and there are other parts of the movie I find inoffensive. Um, but I don't want to rain on your parade. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I don't mean that you're not raining on my parade. I'm not, and I'm not even saying that this is like, I don't think it's necessarily in the group of Tarantino's best. Like if we do a best of the decade episode, there will be a Tarantino movie on the list, but it's not going to be this one. Hateful Eight. Spoilers. It'll be Hateful Eight. <laughs> Mm, hateful poke. I'm poking my wife right now. You can't hear it, but poke. No, uh, yeah, it's like it's far from a perfect movie, but I still found myself engaged with it. Like, you know, he 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 did have me. I just wish he had me a little bit more to where I could say, "Oh yeah, this is like the good good shit." Um, Oh, and also one last thing. Dakota Fanning has kind of, like, haunted me since I've rewatched the movie. I think she has, like, really great bug eyes. Yeah, well... And she has, like, two minutes of screen time and is, like, so good. I think most people really love this movie a lot. I was definitely kind of the outlier. Yeah. Which bums me out a little bit, but... Shall we get to... Number six? Yes. Now, this is another movie that when I heard it was being made, I said to you repeatedly, this is stupid. I wish this director was not doing this. What a waste. And I'm eating that crow. My number six movie of the year, Little Women. Mary Rich, why should I be ashamed of that? There's nothing to be ashamed of. As long as you love him. Well, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. 
And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. It may not be for you, but it most certainly is for me. Yeah. Uh, how about that? Good old uh, Greta Gerwig. She she was the good wig this year. <laughs> so I saw Lady Bird and loved it. And I thought it was really good. And then I heard she was going to follow it up with another adaptation of Little Women. And I was very bummed out by this. I was like, how lame. She should be out there making an original movie, telling an original story. We don't need another Little Women in 2019 because... I had seen the 94 version as a kid, which you had not. I, and I should mention, too, that you showed me the 94 version uh, a few weeks before uh, the Greta Gerwig movie. And I, I quite enjoyed it. I, I thought it was I described it as being like the movie equivalent of being wrapped up in a quilt. Yeah. And which is funny because a few of the actors in that movie went on to be in How to Make an American <laughs> Quilt which I'm sure no one remembers, but uh, yeah. And I, I guess I could, I thought to myself, well, if she's making this movie, I'm not as down on it for you, partly because I have the attachment to the 94 movie, maybe as you did now, granted, you know, it's, I feel like little women is one of those properties though, that gets remade almost every generation. Yeah. So now we should, we should be good though for like another 30 years. Well, I have to say, this version significantly better than the 94 version. Yeah, it's better, with one exception, it's better than the 94 version. And it, this is um, re a really good movie. And Greta Gerwig's real innovation in telling the story is she tells it non-chronologically. She And the way she juxtaposes scenes is really excellent. So instead of just telling the story from... And time-wise, the movie covers several years. It covers a long time. But instead of just telling the story chronologically, she juxtaposes scenes together and tells the story in a non-linear fashion. And the contrasts that she's able to draw... And, just spectacular. And I think this way of telling the story deepens the characterizations. It also gives the movie, um, at times, I think, an even greater sense of, like, tragedy. Which means, basically, I felt everything in this movie more intensely than the 94 versions. Like, the highs are higher and the lows are lower in terms of emotional intensity. And... I also think this movie makes Amy just as captivating a character as yes. Joe. Yeah, that's that's the strong that's the strongest suit of this movie that Florence Pugh's performance and just how her character is framed in the story and we see her progression contrasted with where she is in present well I say present day but like the yeah. where the movie is sort of set in its main prime story and then going back to how she was and you know in that sense it's like you usually for example the whole thing with the uh throwing away all the the writing that she does yeah, into she the fire Joe's book. yeah this felt even more like oh my god than like in the 94 version and it's because 
it's like we know Florence, we, we know this Amy, you know, could do better. And we want to see her do with that because she's so like, we, she feels like family. And the Amy Lori relationship is much better in this movie than mm-hmm. um, Amy and Lori. It always felt kind of like an afterthought, but their relationship and particularly there's this scene where, for, where Amy is telling Lori justifying her need to marry a rich man. Yeah, yeah. It, because Lori is very judgmental of the fact that Amy flat out says, I will only marry rich. But then she gives him an excellent smackdown, really emphasizing how limited a woman's options are in the 19th century. Yeah, yeah. And the, that this is what I have to do because I have nothing else. Um, and this is the best way I can go about it. In that sense, it also even puts Meryl Streep uh, the aunt, what's her name? Aunt March. Aunt March is even like she's not sympathetic at all, but you understand her even better. Like in the '94 one, she's just like, "Oh, I'm a crumpety old." Yeah, so this movie does affect. <laughs> I'd say there's one thing the '94 one did better. Oh yeah, Professor Bear is much better in the '94. Yeah, version. in this they bring in the actor Louis Garrell. Uh, you might remember him from The Dreamers, and. Uh, he, first of all, I feel like maybe it was intentional, unintentionally underwritten, but he doesn't seem to have much at all of a character in this movie. I mean, he's there and he has, you know, he has that scene where he gives criticism to, um, uh, why am I blanking on her? Joe. Joe's right. Jesus is the main character. Joe's writing. But ultimately though, when it comes back around to the ending, that was the one part that felt a little too meta for me, where like Greta Gerwig uses the ending to make a comment on the ending of Little Women because she and she said this in interviews. Oh. She wanted to bring in uh, some of the the author's own life into it. Well, and- so Louisa May Alcott didn't want Joe to end up married to anyone, but her publisher forced her. Okay, well, well, the publisher forced her, but now this is the story that we have. And she could still do that well. That's the one, that's the reason why this isn't on my top 10. It's because I think the ending fumbles that a little bit. It's still interesting conceptually because of the the dialogue that Joe and Tracy Letts have, his character, the the publisher. So good. Yeah, that is really good. Yeah, this is. I said that the the ninety four movie is like a quilt. This is like drinking a big hot cup of cocoa <laughs> on a cold day. It just warms you up, and it made me even like Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, so that was my other concern <laughs> about this film is I really hated the movie Call Me by Your Name. Uh, again refer to our previous episode where Corey basically flipped a table with her mouth. (laughs) Like, I literally walked out of the film. Admittedly, it was in the last scene, so I didn't miss that much. You missed, but Corey, you missed that tender moment where he cries looking in the fire. Oh, God. So anyway, (laughs) I have a real passionate hatred for the movie Call Me By Your Name, and... When I watched that movie, I really just wanted to punch Timothy Chalamet in the face like throughout the entire film. And I haven't, and I've seen him in Lady Bird, but I think that's the only other movie I've seen him in. So I had some concerns 
about how he would be in this movie, especially because Christian Bale plays Laurie in the 94 version. And Christian Bale is immensely charming. I'd say that the only cast member from the 94 film, aside from Gabriel Byrne, Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd say she's better. I think Winona Ryder and um, Saoirse Ronan, they're both great for the movie that they're in. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because these two little women movies that we're talking about, like, we almost thought of doing like a versus episode where we talked about the two movies, but we were like, but we thought we wouldn't have enough to say to fill out oh. that length. But for me, I it's hard for me to say which one I think is better in, in those cases. Um, the clear winner, though, is Florence Pugh, though, for Amy. Yeah. And better Beth. In the new movie, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Better Beth. Uh, yeah. Ev- everyone gets to have a a really strong character and also just uh, some really good facial hair uh, <laughs> for uh, Chris Cooper and Bob Odenkirk. Well, because the other thing, too, is with Beth, they develop her relationship with Laurie's uncle better. Yeah. And but what I loved about this movie was it did an excellent job as just a family drama and a character study, but the kind of larger social commentary about the role of women in the 19th century and how all the women in the movie have such varied reactions to the limitations placed on them by their time. And and also more to the point, how we could still, how does that relate also for 2019? Yeah, so... I loved this movie. It was excellent. And there's also some really amazing, like, individual monologues in it. And I'm a sucker for a monologue. Yes. And Laura Dern was awesome, too. So awesome is Marmy. Yeah. Yeah. That she was so, like, yeah, it's nice to see the range that Laura Dern has. I and mean, we're going to talk about another movie. Yeah. She was in in the next part of the episode. Um, quite a year she's had between Little Women, Big Little Lies, and the other movie. We're in the Dernissance. Well, no. It, see, that's not fair because there would have to be a point where she fell off. That's and true. She never had a period where she was making fool's gold <laughs> and how to lose a guy in 10 days or whatever that was. So we've been Lord living- always been great. So we're- we've been living in... <laughs> We've been living in the gilded <laughs> Laura Dern age. All right. So Little Women, awesome yeah. movie. I yeah. love it. And now we're like really, really getting to the good shit, yeah. man. You know what? Before we do that, why don't we take a break? Okay. And then we'll come back and we will dive into our top five with honorable mentions. So, okay. So take a pause here and we'll be back shortly. Okay.
Heaven Sent Fragrance by Helena Rubenstein. Spray it on and heavenly things happen. Heaven Sent. Splash in it. Laugh in it. Live in it. Love in it. You'll find Heaven Sent Fragrance at Helena Rubenstein counters everywhere.